gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I'm very excited about today's episode. Um, long-time reader, long-time listeners know I am um, an ir- irrational dog person. Um, not that I like irrational dogs, but I'm irrational about dogs. Um, and uh, rather than just co- constantly trying to sneak in dog content um, at the margins, uh, we figured we'd just sort of lean into it. So uh, in the great tradition of having... Uh, rat guy on here. Uh, we had an expert on rats here. We are now having a uh, dog gal. Um, and, uh, and, uh, that is Alexandra Horowitz. She runs the canine cognition lab at Barnard college. Um, she's written a bunch of best-selling books about dogs. Um, um, the latest one is inside a dog, what dogs see, smell, and know. um, the year of the puppy, which just came out, how dogs become themselves. Um, and I have to ask, is inside of a dog a reference to the Groucho Marx joke? It is. <laughs> okay. Which, Elucidating that inside of the dog. Yep. Uh, where it's very, it's too dark to read. Is the, exactly. I've ruined the punchline. So um, thank you very much <laughs> for doing this. Um, My pleasure. Before we get into the, the, the meat of this, um, how did you end up doing it? Cause you were, you sort of, you were, you were one of my tribe. You were a word person before you went and jumped into science world. Um, how'd you get into canine cognition? It was pretty circuitous. Um, I, I actually had a little bit of a stint as a fact checker at, at, at the New Yorker magazine and was a kind of admirer of the Oliver Sacks kind of putting science and philosophy and writing together. Um, I wound up going to grad school in, in cognitive science and was look was interested in non-human animal minds, basically. Um, and after many years of of studying other non-human animals, uh, it turned out that the subject was like right in front of me. You know, um, studying dog play actually was what I did in grad school. That was officially what my dissertation was on. And then I just got interested in dogs, you know, as dogs, just sort of like rat guy, you know, the things that are right in front of you are sometimes the least investigated or known about because a lot of assumptions are made about who they are. And so um, I just stuck with dogs after that. So um, I I entirely agree with you. I spent about a year uh, thinking about writing a book about dogs, but the space is so crowded with people who are more expert like you um, that it just, it felt like... uh, it was not the best idea. Um, but I'm wildly interested in dog genetics and dog cognition and all of these kinds of things. And, um, I guess, you know, part of it for me is that dogs, I always say to people, dogs are the only major animal. I mean, like gut bacteria and that kind of stuff doesn't account that evolved to take the, to, to ally themselves fully with human beings. Um, you can make the argument about horses, but you kind of got to break a horse to be a, uh, be part of the team. Um, cats, you never know when they're going to kill you in their sleep. Um, but dogs, dogs actually evolved to be able to, to read human faces and communicate with humans. And they're sort of our wing beasts. And, um, I've, I've, I've gotten pushback on that, but is that, in your view, is that basically right? Is there another animal that competes with dogs for its relationship with humans. Um, uh, and, and where do you come down on, like there used, you just used to be this claim that dogs are merely social parasites. How do you see dog evolution with, with human beings or human evolution with dogs? Well, I do. I mean, I think you're mostly right. I would agree that they have a unique relationship with us. Some people don't even consider cats fully domesticated, right? But part of that domestication are it's not just their evolution, but kind of our evolution of them, right? Like we kept selecting the ones that worked for us and kept refining them to be just the specimens that we liked for whatever it was at the time. Was it to be the guard dog or the hunting companion? Or more recently, you know, it's all these crazy things like we like dogs to look 
sort of like us, right? And this is how we get dogs like the, you know, the highly, highly inbred dogs with the really flat faces, the brachycephalic breeds. And, but along the way, between their flexibility as a species and our willingness to, you know, continue to um, refine this animal to our specifications, yeah, they wind up having, I think, a unique role with us, a unique space that's not occupied by any other domestic animal, all of whom have been selected by us for various reasons, but none of whom is like inside our home and has this kind of reciprocal communicative understanding and can read us um, so well as dogs can. Yeah. I mean, there's the EQ, right? Dogs have an EQ that cows, which I agree are basically man-made things, um, but you know, cows don't, can't tell when you're in a bad mood the way, you know, a dog can. Um, there was a book out a few years ago that I thought, I loved the theory. I just thought the evidence was really scant that dogs were partly responsible for our ultimate triumph over, um, uh, was it Cro-Magnons? Mm. Um, and part, the only, the only part that I thought was really compelling that I still remember was that there was evidence to believe that, that, that Cro-Magnon did not have whites in their eyes. You know, if you look at a lot of the bigger primates, it's all dark eye and that allowed dogs to bond and read expressions of, of homo sapiens in ways they couldn't with these other humanoids. Um, is that a is that is that a mainstream thing that people talk about, or is this just some random book that I happen to stumble upon? I mean, so one thing that I think is uh, interesting about that is just noticing that there are some you know animals that have sclera in their eyes, and so their eyes are, it's easier to see which way they're looking, and then that conveys information, and that you could be use you could use that, um, and maybe even reciprocally, and that dogs might do this and others not. That's that's good observation. That's discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in in my field, the sort of grander hypotheses about domestication are all hypotheses, right? And uh, and similarly about our competition or how Homo sapiens kind of emerge victorious um, are mostly hypotheses, and and some of them are kind of non-falsifiable hypotheses. So like you make an idea, you present an idea and it's like, I guess that conforms with the evidence, but you can't show that it's wrong with any evidence either. And so that's not exactly scientific territory. So I would say, yeah, it's not something that is under wide discussion in my field. Yeah. Um, So since you bring it up that way, um, last I looked into it, there, it seemed to be like there was a growing consensus that, dog domestication maybe happened more than once. Mm-hmm. Where, what is like the sort of prevailing view about this? Is it, is it an Adam and Eve story where one dog oh, definitely not jumped, uh, you know, jumped to team human or is it something that happened over and over again for various reasons? Yeah. It, the best, most recent evidence. Um, and I don't study dog domestication, so I'm not in the heart of it is that there were multiple domestication events that it happened around the world. And even where it happened, it happened multiple times, mm-hmm. right? That there might've been a, a group of, you know, wolves who kind of self-domesticated in some place and then also did not survive, right? Were not then selected and became dogs, but along the way were transformed anatomically and presumably, presumably also in their brain by self-selection and by some selection, but then they didn't make it into the modern dog today. So, but there's, that's, I'd say by the, when I started studying dogs in about 2000, 1998, the idea was that there was one domestication event. And now that's completely been overturned. And and the best evidence is that there are many and the, and the evidence is archeological and it's genetic. So it's convergent evidence. So I, I, I like to ask this question in various ways to experts in specific fields um, because you, you always you sometimes get surprised I can say you always get surprised so in the world of dog con- cognition which you are right in the center of what are the what are what are the topics that are most likely to start an argument like what are the <laughs> issues that divide like you, you get 10 of you together and you get 
one side saying you guys are crazy and the other side saying you guys, I mean, I know it happens a lot in paleontology in part because a lot of that stuff really is non-falsifiable, but you know, and then you find it all sorts of stuff in physics, you know, there are different teams and philosophy, there are different teams. Are there different teams in the world of dog cognition these days? Yeah. yeah I mean, there are domestication teams, that's for sure. Um, so there are just different theories about how, how it could have started when it did start. Right. I gave you a little bit of a kind of, self-selection by wolves story well other people would be up in arms about that right and say that it was a little bit more of we specifically selected them at the beginning right so that's an argument that one could have um if one was looking you know to have arguments at the dog cognition conference um i sometimes have arguments about the dominance of their olfactory sense you know because a lot of people in my field study basically the visual experience of dogs but i'm pretty heated about the fact that they're not primarily visual, but this kind of language of who are they primarily, you know, what's our primary sensory modality? In other words, how do they essentially experience the world? One could have an argument about that. Um, The degree of their relatedness. I mean, I'm thinking about like, what are the arguments I've had in the past? The degree of their relatedness to um, dingoes, say, um, or, you know, whether dingoes are actually dogs. Um, the Siberian fox um, story that, like, that is thought to kind you of... You make them cute, they become domesticated, right? Right, right. They basically choose, you know, choose the least aggressive fox over time and then over 40 generations of this choice, which could be over 40 years or less, you know, you wind up with a smaller-brained tail wagging, um, you know, piebald coated dog, essentially. Uh, so there's an argument about that because the question is sort of how the foxes started. And, and also, you know, just because you can kind of recreate domestication, does that mean it happened that way? I'd say those were the, those are the types of arguments that happen. We're, you know, it's sort of an agreeable group, frankly. Maybe that's the, the self-selection <laughs> of people who, who decide to study dogs professionally and take it seriously. So since you're a leader of Team Olfactory, uh, yeah. why didn't you just sort of make a case? Like, wh- wh- why do you think, I mean, I have my own theories, but I'm not an expert on this. Uh, why do you think the nose knows? And why does it matter a lot? Well, I mean, when you really look at behavior agnostically, like not knowing already what the dog is doing, everybody, you could say, well, the dog is looking in this direction. But that's just ignoring the fact that the actual, the musculature that's working is from their nose. If you investigate their nose at all, you know, they're clearly finely tuned instruments to exploring the world via that organ, right? The whole nose itself, the snout is incredibly tailored to always send molecules of odor to the back of the nose to be sniffed. They have hundreds of millions more olfactory receptors than we do. Their olfactory bulb in the brain is 40 times larger than our olfactory bulb relatively. You know, they have these specialized ways of exhaling. Um, they have a second accessory, uh, an accessory olfactory organ called the verboronasal organ, which like detects pheromones. Um, so, so much about their behavior and their anatomy points to the fact that they are smelling first, right? I'm not saying they aren't seeing, but I don't think that's, primarily their experience. Um, and the good reason to believe that seeing is primarily their experience is only that we are seeing animals. And so we make that assumption about other animals with eyes that they basically see the way we do. So when, when dogs are dreaming and they seem to be chasing squirrels or, or whatever, or running away from bigger dogs, these are my theories of my two dogs, primary forms of dreams. Um, can you tell, is the, is the, you know, it's like with human REM sleep, it, part of it is the processing of memory from short-term to long-term and all that kind of stuff. Can you tell that the olfactory part of the brain is firing up more than the visual part of the brain, or is that not mm. part of the equation? Mm, potentially one could tell that. I don't think anybody's studied that, right? The people who've done fMRIs with dogs, um, which would identify sort of at least the more active part of the brain, uh, haven't looked at dogs sleeping yet, as far as mm-hmm. I know. Um, just because it's probably hard to get them to go to sleep in the <laughs> tube. 
I mean, they're pretty cooperative to be in the scanners to begin with and just sit yeah. there. But um, to get them to sleep, be sleeping and still, that's like maybe one ask too much. But yeah, uh-huh. in theory, that's what it would show. It would show more olfactory activity um, or even just in ordinary behavior, right? And, and we do see, in fact, I was involved in a recent study that showed that there is a huge amount, there's a big tract of, I didn't do this research, but I just consulted with them about the behavior that correlated with it. This was, these are researchers at Cornell. They, there's a huge tract of um, white matter of, of neurons that go from the olfactory lobe to the visual cortex in the dog. This is a kind of unprecedented connection. We don't typically see that. Most of the sensory parts of the brain might connect to um, you know, a mediating part of the brain, right? But not to each other in this way. But it appears that in the dog, there is this strong connection. And, you know, which is an indication that the olfactory lobe has a primacy in dogs that it doesn't in us. And that would be sort of beyond our imagination um, if we just extrapolate from our experience. How does that raise a question? Um and, and just so you know, I'm going to come back to dingoes because one of my dogs is a Carolina dog, which is also known as the American Dingo. And I have, I have just deep investments in all of that. But um, before we get there, dog, you know, domesticated dogs and wolves, how are their brains different? Gener- I mean, I understand that we're speaking to large levels of generality, but is the olfactory prominence as, as pronounced? with wolves as it is with dogs or is it different? No, it's also, I mean, wolves actually have a more acute sense of smell. Um, their brains are generally a little bit bigger. Domestic dogs' brains are smaller relative to their size than wolves are. That's part of the sort of domestication syndrome is that you have, that the brain is, is a little bit reduced in size and so to scale down is the olfactory lobe. I don't know if anybody's put wolves and dogs together and compared their sort of olfactory acuity, right, behaviorally. But I'd expect that they, that dogs would be slightly less keen than wolves based just on their anatomy. Although you can imagine, say, bloodhounds, which have like 10 times the olfactory capacity of shih tzus, might be more specialized than wolves, but that's neither here yeah, nor there in some enough, ways, right? right? Certainly the ones that we have then specifically selected and like inbred for that ability might, right? But they also might have some sort of specializations that, um, you know, that while wolves are more generalists. So um, I know that with humans, and I'm not going to get into the whole Stephen Jay Gould, James K. Wilson world, but so with humans, the idea that bigger brain means smarter has a fraught and controversial history. And (laughs) this is a no no phrenology zone, just so you know. But um, are you somehow implying or suggesting that wolves are smarter than dogs? Um, is there a way to test such a proposition? Mm, I am not implying that. And I would absolutely um, yeah, disabuse anybody of the notion that a bigger brain equates to anything except for just less brain matter, right? Um, per se. But Bigger and, brain, bigger hat size. I think we can yeah. call those correlations, right? Yeah, so for your, all your hat, your dog <laughs> hat needs, you know, you, you yeah. can go with smaller sizes. Um, ugh, intelligence also is fraught, though. That word right. itself is fraught when you talked about EQ before. But what I, what I think is important is that wolves don't have the intelligence to read humans the way dogs do. That's right. the thing that we're interested in about dogs, you know, as people who live with dogs. So while dogs um, in some physical problem-solving tasks are going to perform less well overall than wolves, um, in social problem-solving tasks, they seem to perform better. And that's partly because they can use humans as information sources. Um, And in fact, they also use humans as like problem solvers and the physical problem tasks, right? Like they're less good at sort of solving things for themselves. There's a really nice study from years ago that was done by a group in Vienna where they basically teach a dog and these, and these wolves that are kind of enculturated. So accustomed to them, accustomed to the researchers, but not, um, you know, not tamed exactly, not domesticated. Certainly they teach them to pull a string 
um, to get this meat out of a container. And so they both learn to do that readily. Um, and then they make it more difficult. You have to pull the string with some force. They both can do it. And then they make it impossible. In other words, the string will not get the meat out, but they've just learned this association. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have dogs going at it. And after a little bit, you know, they give up. And if there's any person in the vicinity, they look to that person. Right. Um, the wolves do not give up. This is why you shouldn't own a wolf in a house, right? Like they will continue <laughs> to try to find any way into that container to get that meat. Um, and don't look to a person. So they're, that actually makes them much better physical problem solvers, even though in that case, they might not solve that problem. It's an impossible task. They don't, they have the wherewithal to keep going at it. So I wouldn't say that either is more intelligent, right? They're specialized to do different types of things. And one of the things dogs is, are specialized to do is us, is read us. I, I know that evolutionary success in no way should be associated with intelligence because there are all sorts of horrible creatures that have done really well evolutionarily. Um, and I use this in an entirely uh, self-aware uh, uh, bigoted manner towards various creepy crawly things. But um, uh, still, as an evolutionary matter, dogs have kind of, you can argue dogs have left wolves in the dust, right? I mean, how many wolves are there in the world? 100,000, 200,000? I mean, I don't know what the number is, but it can't be much more than that. And, you know, meanwhile, I remember looking at this number a while ago, like 10 years ago, it was something like 60% of Americans buy Christmas presents for their dogs and like <laughs> half of them wrap them. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is serious evolutionary success when you think about it, right? <laughs> oh, they're wild. Dogs are wildly successful, right? Absolutely. In that way. On the other hand, look at it this way. When there is some event that's fatal to humans, that's it for dogs, right? Like all dogs are living, mm -hmm. including all the free ranging dogs are living in and around humans, are pretty dependent on humans for survival, right? Don't have any of that wolfy intelligence, which allowed them to, which allows wolves to live in the wild, right? Dogs mm -hmm. are mostly free-ranging dogs, meaning like any dog, we might think of them as wild dogs or feral dogs. We tend to call free-ranging ones who are living not in a, a person's home or are intentionally provisioned by people. They still live around human habitation, right? They depend on us, our protection, our food. Um, so if you wound up without humans, suddenly wolves would, um, I think, surpass dogs. Yeah, and coyotes and all those kinds of yeah. critters. Yeah. Oh, of course, so many of the coyotes are now like, you know, coyote dogs, right? Like they're combo. Right. So that's interesting how they're infiltrating that population. So, but I think we can also say just deductively that the basset hounds and bulldogs would go sooner <laughs> than some of the other breeds. And I love both of them, but like I have an English Springer Spaniel who would not survive the winter without humans. And I have this Carolina dog that could probably go several years because particularly when she was younger, she was a killing machine and mm -hmm. it was a real problem. I'm, I'm, I'm of the school that says cute things shouldn't kill other cute things. Mm -hmm. And so it was a real problem for me, but, um, but she was semi-feral and could really, you know, rabbit. I mean, they're like almost everything that was written on the side of the Tasmanian devil's uh, box that said the things that he eats. Uh -huh. Those were the things that my Carolina dog would eat. Um, <laughs> All right, so I want to get back to the science in a second, but I got to ask, like, being a dog, like, you know how there are certain people who only want to talk about um, uh, how their stock portfolio is doing, and there's certain <laughs> kind of people who only want to talk about their own kids' college experience or mm. college application experience? Mm. You must have to deal with an enormous number of people who want to explain to you how, how fascinating their own dogs are. Is that a problem? Do you get tired of it? Mm. You know, I've, um, that is absolutely <laughs> the case. And I have made my peace with it. I do have a class that I teach uh, called Canine Cognition. 
And I have a rule on the first day that there will be no sentence that starts my dog in this Mm -hmm. for the whole semester, because otherwise that is where every human conversation goes, right? Which is fine. You know, that's the, that is the case, right? That we're interested in dogs because of our relationships with these particular creatures who we know really well, who are at our feet right now. But, um, yeah, initially, actually, when I, when I published Inside of a Dog and uh, it started making the rounds and I started getting mails from people with photos of their dogs, right? Descriptions, just that's all the whole mail was. It was just descriptions of their dogs and a photo of their dog. And I mean, I've kept those. I have thousands of photos of dog, people's dogs. They just want to share that thing. So initially I was kind of bemused and then I was like, I, this is not the conversation I meant to have. And then <laughs> I came around to the other side and said, well, listen, but this is the, this is what this is. These, these dogs are like people to all these people. And I appreciate that. And that in and of itself is interesting. So a few years ago, so and I, I bring this up because I, I know about this in myself and I would rather, I could do a whole podcast where I just ask you questions about my dogs, but I, I know that that, and there are some listeners cause my dogs have a pretty big fan base out there on social media, but I would, I refuse to do that for rounds of intellectual integrity. That said a few years ago, maybe it was, I don't know, 10 years ago, there was a, the, the, I think the guys down in, at, at Emory did this stuff and they seemed to, the New York Times and a bunch of other places wrote these, did these write-ups about how they've finally proven that dogs love you. Mm, mm, mm. I kind of liked the piece you did for the Wall Street Journal about this, where you didn't fully commit to the sort of anthropomorphization of dogs, but at the same time, you ran through a checklist of, well, look at it chemically. This is what's going on in their brains. Look at it behaviorally. And it's sort of like at some point, it kind of looks like a duck, <laughs> right? Um, where do you come down on when, when, when this comes up in, in a scientific context, wh- where do you come down about what dogs think about us? Yeah. You know, we all um, have to earn our anti-anthropomorphism badges to be scientists. But at the same time, the more, you know, just studying our behavior is part of studying non-human animals, actually. And we've been reflecting on dogs and talking about dogs for a long time. So sometimes there's something to be said for the types of anthropomorphisms we make and maybe even worth investigating. So I'm not always anti them. Um, but I just want to look critically at them. So what they know, what they think about us um, is, is like the question I've gotten from the very beginning, actually. And I've always been interested in like, well, what's the dogs, how, the, how do dogs see the world, right? What's their umwelt, what's their point of view, what's their perspective, what's it like to be a dog? And but everybody's always turning around and asking me, but what do they know about like what do they know about me? Right? What does my dog know about me? And I have to say, the science doesn't say much about that, frankly. I mean, the very fact that there was all that research in the scanners and so forth that went into just seeing if they loved us, right? Like if they had right, that's that's like the base that's like the simplest question you could ask at some level, right? Obviously, in some ways they do. Look, just look at their behavior. It's pretty apparent that they're kind of attached to us, right? Like I literally have a dog on my foot right now, right? And she's delighted when I come home and she's stressed out when I leave and all right. But um, so I think that it's, it's ponderous to ask that in my mind. That said, I will say I consider them little anthropologists, you know, in our house and they wind up knowing things sort of our tells. So that will be different for different people, but kind of what we typically tend to do. They're sitting there most of the day with not a lot to do. And so they watch us, they see what we tend to do and they start to notice. So that's the difference between her getting up to go to the fridge and her getting up to take me for a walk. Like they know it as soon as I know it they can tell that difference. So they're very good readers of behavior. Um, They know what it takes to get our attention, right? And they're actually pretty good at that too. They'll ramp it up as high as it needs to go to get our attention. But if we're responsive to like a small gesture uh, or request, then that's all they'll use as well, right? They don't ramp it up. Um, And we do know that they, if we go back to olfaction again, kind of my friend olfaction, we do know that they really notice differences 
that might be really salient, meaningful differences in our smell. And that has spawned this whole sub-industry now of training dogs to detect diseases. This came from basically pet dogs. Uh, it was reported first in the Lancet, you know, a couple dozen years ago, who were just worrying apart, you know, noticing and keep sniffing a part of the, their owner's body repeatedly until the owner bothers to go to say something to the doctor. The doctor checks it out, finds a melanoma, mm -hmm. right? There were mm -hmm. two cases of this very early on. What did the dog notice? Well, they don't know what cancer is. They know that we smell different and they're interested in it, right? So that's the type of thing they know about us. Um, and I usually remain agnostic about like their interpretation of it, right? Whether it's the cancer or like what type of person or who we are. I think they notice our behavior, our habits, and our smell, and they notice when things change. But I don't know if they're making judgments about like, well, this is a great person, or that's a bad thing to happen to her leg, you know, and I should check that out as much as just being good observers of our behavior. So I, I'm a little trepidatious to, to ask this question because I, I want to be very clear. I have, no, I have no agenda to it, but like growing up in New York City, not far from Barnard College, actually, uh, I knew people who claimed that they're, and you hear this all the time in various places, claim that their dogs were racist because mm. they didn't like black people. Mm -hmm. But I've known black people who think their dogs don't like white people. And... <laughs> I've always had this theory that part of it, like if a dog can smell, you know, microns of melanoma smell, whatever, they can smell very subtle differences in, in, in melanin content or what, melatonin content or whatever. Right. And there's also the fact that, you know, at least in New York city, a lot of the black people I knew didn't grow up with dogs like most of the Jews I know who didn't grow up with dogs. And if you didn't grow up with dogs, you tend to be scared of dogs and dogs pick up on people who are scared of them. But is this, uh, I can't think of anything other than the basically variations of those two kinds of explanations. One, it's sort of like one nature, one nurture that would explain it. But it is this thing. If you Google my dog racist, it's amazing how many people think that like, like they like their dog was reading Spangler, you know, in their in their quiet moments or something. And I, am I am I crazy for even bringing it up? I mean, have, have you heard? Have you have people asked you about this before? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I know that there was even a research group that who they were looking into whether there was implicit bias in dogs, right? Which I thought, mm -hmm. which I don't think they found anything. So we haven't seen any publications on that. Um, in the way that right, uh, a lot of literature looking at race relations looks for implicit bias, even in people who, right. who, who pronounce themselves to not be racist. Um, yes. And what they're extrapolating from these people who, who are worried that their dog is racist, uh, is, is that they notice the a behavioral difference. So, Hey, that's good. They are seeing a behavioral difference toward somebody who they're characterizing as, as a different race mm -hmm. than, than they are. Um, than how the dog would behave to somebody else. So that the question to me is not like, are they noticing, is there a behavioral difference in how they interact? But like, is it have to do, does it have to do with race? What does the thing that it has to do with? And it's often hard to disentangle race from some other characteristics, right? Like it could be that a bunch of people who don't grow up with dogs then as you say, do act differently around dogs than people who feel very warmly and responsive to dogs and will go up to every dog on the street um, happily, right? And appropriately, right? Not coming at them, but sort of like friend in friendly manner. As a result, the dog is going to pick up on that immediately. As I say, they're great observers of our behavior and have a guarded response to it. The person at the end of the leash is going to notice the dog's guarded response and themselves pull back on the leash a little bit more, right? So then you have this compounded response based on a behavioral difference that has something to do with how, how the person is acting when they approach the dog. Is the, is the thing that defines why they're behaving that way race? Maybe, right. but it could also be just uh, culture, right? Like the right. some random thing that's sort of correlated with race, but really not really yeah. kind of yeah. like, yep, absolutely. Yeah. People say the same things about, you know, my dog is afraid of men, for instance, I get that a lot, right? Well, it could be because men do act a little bit differently on the whole 
to dogs when they approach a new dog, you know, I'm very interested in like the things, how we talk to dogs and things we say to dogs. And I spend a lot of time eavesdropping on people listening, talking to dogs on the street, you know, just how people just chatter on with dogs. Most of those people are women or the people who have the elaborate conversations with dogs are more often women, maybe like 70, 30, 80, 20. So, you know, the guy is less likely to approach a dog and say, Hey, sweetie, how you doing? Right? Like, so you get a different reaction. Do they hate men? No, they're just, you know, noticing a difference between these. And and the man who does approach that way is treated like all the people with whom they're familiar. Is there also a smell component? You know, could be, but frankly, that's something I'm not going to step in because I don't know, you know, what the literature is about how people smell differently we definitely smell differently, right? And sexes smell differently. People from different, we smell like what we eat. So people from different cultures who have very different diets smell differently. So is that salient to a dog? Absolutely. Does it break down along racial lines? Maybe sometimes and maybe sometimes not. Right. I mean, I mean sometimes I, one analogy I often use is like, um, I've always had this theory that one of the reasons, I mean, I, I know pit bulls can be, Pitbulls are a controversial subject, mm. but I've always thought that one of the reasons why pitbulls get into scraps with other dogs is because the other dog owner, the non-pitbull dog owner, is afraid of pitbulls, and so then their dog picks up on their owner's fear of a pitbull and gets all growly and 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 defensive, and then the pitbull picks up on it as an aggressive move, whereas. I'm not afraid of pit bulls and I don't communicate to my dogs to be afraid of pit bulls. And so I've never had a problem with pit bulls, but there are a lot, having spent a lot of time in urban dog parks, there are a lot of people who you can just see their physicality changes when a pit bull enters, you know, the, the, the park and their dogs pick up on it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's really astute, Jonah. It's like, I, especially in the last decade, 15 years, I've noticed a lot more, um, of people's hesitancy to just allow dogs to interact, period. And then the dogs who are these like bet noirs, right? Like the Pitbull today used to be the Rottweiler or the Doberman or the German Shepherd. People, you know, uh, have that reaction to them and their dog picks up on it 100%. There's a study that I've been trying to do forever that I just haven't figured out how to do, which kind of investigates this. And I, it, it was... Um, it's modeled on like a study that um, some horse researchers did where they got people who said their horses were scared of certain kind of stimuli, like an umbrella opening or like a sudden a person suddenly appearing out of nowhere. And they got them to like walk around an arena and they told them, and so their hands, the owner is handling the horse. And they told them that like at a certain point when they navigate the arena, they're going to, they're going to f- encounter this stimulus, right? They're going to encounter the scary thing. Um, but then they don't encounter it, right? Like they've been misled and the horse is just walked by nothing that happens, but the horse still has a fear response. Hmm. Why do they have the fear response? They have it from the person who right. anticipated that something bad was going to happen because they've been told ahead of time. And I'd love to do that same study with people and their dogs on leashes where except for it's going to, it would be hard to get people to go into a scenario where I'm like, you know, that thing that you're really scared of with your dog, like they're going to encounter it over there on that side of the (laughs) arena. But if I could, I think I could start to basically prove what you're suggesting. What I, what I also believe, which is that dogs get a lot of uh, their responsiveness to other dogs from us. All right. So I know you're not a geneticist, um, but I know you've spent more time thinking about this than I have. Um, what is your view on the, uh, how to put this in a neutral way to elicit a capacious response? How do you, what is your view on the utility of the doggy genetic testing things? Oh. Like what, what do you think it actually tells people? Um, how reliable do you think they are? Anyway, I'll leave it there and we'll, I'll, yeah. I'll have follow-ups. Well, I mean, that's a, it's a moving target, right? Um, and there are lots of different types of genetic tests out there that can get you different levels of detail of information about um, 
your dog's heritage um, or dispositions to diseases, etc. Just like the human DNA testing, it gets better the more people submit their data because there are more comparison points. And it's all about comparison points. It's all about saying like, this is where you fit in our pool of samples. So if they don't have any Carolina dogs, your dog is never going to test as a Carolina dog because there's just Mm -hmm. no comparison, right? They'll just say, well, they're really distantly Labrador or something like that. And you're saying, well, that's, that's wrong, but that's, that's the, the test is only as good as it's, it's comparison points. So um, I think they're getting better. You know, I think the main usefulness for most dog owners is just scratching that itch of curiosity. It's most of them are not going to get information that is specifically um, informative about something they would not already know about with their dog. So some breeds do have dispositions to certain diseases. And let's say you're a breeder and you want to know if the stud that you want to um, mate, if, if all their gets are going to be also laden with this disease, it might be useful to have a genetic test, right? But for the person, the casual going around town dog person who just wants to know, like they, they said that he was a pit mix. I want to know. It's just, it's, it's just satisfying curiosity and it's only as good as the, the sample base. And it's so, which is to say not hundred percent good. You know, you can sort of say like the region of a dog family to whom they're most close, but you can't say this is who their parents were, right? That's mm-hmm. the type of thing it can't do. So, you know, a lot of these products, as you said, plenty of people are buying Christmas presents for their dogs of the things, at least this is sort of information gaining. And there are, you know, like there's a group at Harvard who's using this information, um, to try to correlate the genetics more with owner reported behaviors of their dogs and get a better idea of which gene clusters are responsible in, in this mm-hmm. non-deterministic way or associated with some types of behaviors that would be useful to know. Right. So that gives more information to those geneticists and that's great. Um, you know, more power to them. But does it tell you anything truly insightful about your dog? No. So I have a friend who's a geneticist and he says these tests have gotten a lot better and, and all that. And and I don't need one for the two dogs I have now. I know that one's an English Springer Spaniel. And we thought that the Carolina dog, we thought we were adopting a shepherd mix puppy, but it's she's from the heart of South Carolina where these Carolina dogs exist. And she has all these behaviors like Carolina dogs do, bearing her poop with her snout and weird vocalizations. And she's, and plus she's sort of like Andrew Jackson going off into the forest <laughs> and coming out with like a necklace of ears from oh, squirrels geez. or whatever. So she's just, she's, she's a Carolina dog. But like my old dog, Cosmo, may he rest in peace. Uh, he was a rich ethnic cocktail. And the, and 15 years ago, we got two different genetic tests. We got two different sets of answers. Um, and my bigger problem with it is that it seems to me that often what they're doing is they're looking for, at least this used to be the case, they're looking for sequences or clusters or whatever or traits that are found, they're disproportionately found in say beagles or St. Bernard's, right? But that doesn't actually mean that their ancestor was a St. Bernard or a beagle. Um, you know, the idea that there are all of these St. Bernard's and beagles running around getting jiggy, you know, in the woods somewhere strains credulity in a certain way. Um, But also the whole thing, what bothers me about it is that the whole thing kind of works from the assumption that breeds are natural Mm. and mutts aren't when it's much closer to the reverse. Right. I mean, so like one of the things when I was reading up about Carolina dogs is the funny thing about Carolina dogs is that they also look like street dogs in Kiev and Caracas and Tibet and um, as one uh, geneticist sort of explained to me, is like if you put a, a St. Bernard, a Great Dane, some poodles, some Labradoodles, whatever, and we haven't even gotten to the problem of Labradoodle, of, of doodle proliferation, but um, on an island and you let them breed in five or 10 generations, they're all going to look like my mutt, you know, like, like a Carolina dog, because that's what dogs actually want to be. Yeah. is this, you know, there's a certain ratio, you know, like pariah dogs or land race dogs, you know, they all kind of all look the same like my dog, like a rancher would shoot them on sight. But the the way the breed stuff works, it's very much like why I don't like things like Ancestry. I mean, there's lots of great stuff about Ancestry.com and 23andMe and all that. 
But there's also this sort of identity politics thing that works from the assumption that there's a pure essence of a German or the pure essence of an Irishman or the pure essence of, you know, a, a Frenchman. And that's all garbage, right? And similarly, St. Bernard's are not natural. That's not what dogs, like, like without human intervention, you would never have 95% of these breeds, anything like them occur anywhere. But the way this stuff is marketed and the way people talk about it, they make it sound like no matter how many generations back you go, you'll find more dog breeds. And that's just not, it's a very Disney way of thinking about dogs. I'm sorry for the rant, but it, it bothers me when I have these conversations with people normally. Yeah, no, no. I'm, I mean, I, I think I continue that rant quite a ways. Um, the, uh, we could talk about the fact that all breeds are basically the product of eugenic minds right. who wanted to distinguish the very best dogs from the proletariat mass dogs, right? right. And Francis Galton may have invented statistics, but he's got a lot to answer for. Right? <laughs> yeah. He's a big part of all this, right? Most of the breeds that we know today, the hundreds of breeds that the kennel clubs in various countries acknowledge, you know, appeared, started being inbred in the late 19th century, mid 19th century, some in the early 20th century, before that, were there dogs that looked a little more like a spaniel? Sure, right? Those were probably field dogs who were used in hunting. Were there dogs that looked a little bit more like a shepherd? Yeah, for sure. But they just reified it and they tried to distinguish it so they didn't have to have the dogs that all the mass had, right? And that they could start to take dogness away from it. And I think that's been a massive problem with dogs and continues to be a big problem with dogs. And so you're right, insofar as this, they're saying, the parents, you know, I tried to pussyfoot around it, I guess, a little bit by saying, oh, well, you're not getting a story of who the parents of your dog were. You're just sort of saying what families of dogs your dog is more closely related to than others. There's, it is a conceit that breeds come first and that genes, the genetics is going to wind up telling you something about breeds. That is baked into how we think about dogs now, though, right? Like it absolutely is. You can't, People will not, don't even talk about dogs without talking about what type of breeds they are or what breeds do, characteristic traits of breeds, right? Like it is completely baked into our thinking about it. So I push against it a lot because I, I'm not, I'm just not a big fan of pure breeding of dogs. I just don't think that that's where we should be going. Um, I don't think it's good for dogs and it's, I don't think it's good for the way we interact with dogs as well, which is sort of more objectifying and, and making assumptions about how they're supposed to behave based on, you know, like designing dogs, basically, right? Designing them into a fairly well until they're just basically an object that's supposed to turn on when you want them to turn on and turn off when you want it to be off. And I think that kind of undermines the whole interest in living with dogs. So yeah, I can rant. I can do that rant. <laughs> you know, like we, we could share rants. I mean, like uh, the the fact that most bulldogs have to be delivered by cesarean section now, right, is grotesque. You know, it is just it's it's terrible, and um, and I think that's true of a, of basset hounds more often. And I I love me some basset hounds, but mm. um, I used to have one of the greatest basset hounds I ever lived. But um, that stuff is so terrible to me. It's, 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 it's up a par with like all the docking stuff, which I, I, I despise. But, um, um, I do want to talk a little bit about canine intelligence. And since you, you use the eugenics word before I did, um, it's, it's, it's increasingly obvious to me that should there be some horrible disease that wipes out humanity, the next intelligent race to control the planet will be border collies. <laughs> um, and maybe they'll work out something with chimpanzees for the shared labor of thumbs. I don't know, but I'm sure, you know, you know, there's that, that border collie chaser, um, who was owned by the guy, Pitney Pilly. I can't Pilly. remember. John Pilly. Big 60 minute celebrity and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And for listeners who don't know, go, just Google world smartest dog 60 minutes and it'll come up. He made the case that, that he didn't necessarily think chaser was that exceptional. And I have a hard time, like I've known a few Border Collies. I mean, like Border Collies are crazy smart, but that was a really exceptional dog. Um, what, what does it tell us that, I mean, so first of all, do we think that there are an enormous number of dogs that are as smart as like three-year-old humans just out there that we're not paying attention to? And, but second of all, more broadly, um, 
what is that all? What did what did Chaser actually tell you, at least, or what you think about the outer boundaries of canine intelligence and and the ability to breed for intelligence in a way that I think people kind of stumbled onto with with border collies. Before Chaser, there was a dog named Rika, who was also a border collie, who was discovered by a researcher in Germany uh, who had learned hundreds of words, right? To, and Chaser, and it was what prompted mm-hmm. John to study Chaser who eventually I think learned 1,022 names of words and could act different actions vis-a-vis those words. Well, it is something about Border Collies insofar as they are motivated to do that kind of attention-heavy work. However, it's not all Border Collies. You know, there's a program right now that some researchers are running out of Hungary um, where they, you know, it was called the Genius Dog Challenge, and they were looking for more of these like fast word learning dogs. Some of them are border collies, some of them are not. Many of the dogs who failed to do it are border collies. So while generally that breed does seem to be, you could say more intelligent, I would say more motivated to do this type of thing, it's not all members of the breed. And so that, you know, undercuts a little bit the genetic determinism that is sort of implied in the, in, um, not to put words in your mouth, but in that, in that kind of question. Um, yeah. but I also want to point out that John, John was a retired psychologist. He had a career as a psychologist. He then spent eight hours a day with Chaser, teaching her these words repeatedly again and again and again in different contexts, right? Here's one of the word, one of the toy words among seven. Here's one, you know, first you just do it by itself, by itself. Here's among seven. Here's an exclusion test, whatever he was doing, eight eight hours a day. So it's like the result of his work with her and her work with him was that she could show this extraordinary ability. Was it some like inborn ability to speak language that she had that he like allowed to emerge? No, it's the process of this like very, very deliberate, long conditioning you know, to understand something which is not naturally part of dog understanding. So I don't think that that word learning per se showed us anything about border collie or dog intelligence. It showed us about what can, you know, border collies, which are bred to do very specific work with people where they also have to behave independently and they have to be very motivated to keep going and persistent at their work can also, we can also shape them to do other tasks, which would require the same kind of persistence and attention um, and interest in the task, right? And that's very cool. And, you know, you should only get a border collie if you really have something for that border collie to do. That's what that tells me. But I don't, you know, I wouldn't say that, you know, that's 60 minutes saying they're the smartest dog, right? Smart for that. Just ask that dog to sit alone in a waiting room for eight hours with nothing to do, and they're just going to go bananas. But actually, that's what we're asking most dogs to do most days, every day. Just be like quiescent most of the time. And so the smart dog is the one who's like, I can deal with this. I'm going to have a nice nap. (laughs) I'm going to just nose around a little bit. And that might seem to us like a dumb dog. Well, hey, that's actually the one who's best adapted for doing the things we're asking them to do. So again, I'm going to kind of question the notion of what counts as intelligence. You know, no, no, I, look, I think that's entirely fair. And, and it, it sort of gets to another one of my peeves about, you know, people who, you know, this, the, the I drive cross country a lot with their dogs and, um, it's much better than it was 20 years ago, but you still find hotels that say, oh yeah, dogs are allowed up to 30 pounds or whatever, yeah. right? And basically they want the ladies with the, with the purse dogs because and nobody else. And it's similar like in New York and lots of places that think that like big dogs are a bigger problem for apartments than small dogs. And the thing is, except for the slobber, a newfie is going to lie around all day and not tear up anything. But a Jack Russell, if you don't keep that dog exercised, it, it is going to like rewire your house and not in an aesthetically pleasing way, you know, and it's going to empty out every pillow. This idea that like small dog equals less damage is so stupid. Um, and, and my own view is like there, there are certain breeds that non-experienced dog owners should never have. Pitbulls are one, border collies are another. 
high, you know, it, I, I think there were all sorts of problems with, with the dog whisperer, but one of the things I think he was absolutely right about was most behavioral problems are solved by exercising your dog properly. Mm. And a lot of people, particularly in the post-COVID era, don't do that. And it drives me nuts. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think you're exactly right. The big dogs are often the chillest dogs. It's fine to have a big dog in a small apartment because you're taking them out a couple times a day. Assuming that you are, right? That's, they don't need, they're not pacing the apartment. But that little terrier, that terrier is tearing up and down the apartment, right? So they can be a little bit of um, like a force of chaos. I don't understand it's just, you know, that that's how deeply like screwed up our ideas of dogs are that we just somehow think like big is a problem and small is easy. Um, that like simplistic reductive assumption. Now on Milan, I, that is the one thing I will agree with him on as well, right? Like his, well, two things really, he pointed out that often the owners are causing problems for their dogs, right? Like, right. What we see as dog problems or dog misbehavior has a lot to do with their dogs being really responsive to us and are just randomly behaving toward the dog, right? And the dog picks up on that and figures out how to how to live in that house and it's not working for either one. That's one. And the other is, yeah, most dogs aren't getting enough exercise. And exercise could be running around. It could be social exercise, mm-hmm. right? Like interacting with other, they're social creatures and they need to have stimulation, right? Like being the sort of way that we isolate dogs is bananas, right? Just have like, we take dogs from their litter and we're like, oh, this is so sad. They're leaving their whole litter. And then we put them in a crate or something. And we're like, well, that's going to be a nice safe space. I'm like, whoa, that's like the most challenging thing you could do for this dog, basically. And so maybe they're really adaptive. Maybe they'll adjust to it. They'll figure out how to deal with it, but we can make it easier for them. And give them the exercise of interacting with other dogs socially on a regular basis and mental exercise. They need mental exercise too, right? They're not dim-witted. They are engaging with the world just like every other animal, including the human animal. And for us to give them nothing to do most of the time, even though we completely control most of their lives, like when they can go out, when they can pee, like their, their lives are so controlled by us. And you know, that fact that we don't give them anything to do in the times when we leave them alone, it just, it, it beggars belief. Yeah, the um, the mental stimulation part of it is huge. I, that, that first dawned on me, again, we, we drive cross country and you realize that the dogs didn't need that much exercise over the course of the day if you were driving all day because they're, they were paying attention. They were looking out the window, they were awake, you know, and normally if, you know, dogs don't have anything to do. They're asleep. And like, so just, just being in the car with the humans for eight hours was a lot of stimulation. You still had to get them, a, get, you know, do some exercise and let them relieve themselves. But it's interesting that like just keeping their brains engaged with the universe is sometimes enough. It doesn't have to be, you know, the perpetual fetching machine that a, my spaniel is or something right. like that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, absolutely. You said something earlier, uh, I, I just can't let it go because I know people say, why'd you let it go? You said there's a debate about whether or not dingoes are dogs. Can oh. you tell me more about this? Well, um, the question is kind of, you know, in, in Australia, dingoes are viewed as, um, I mean, to use the word that's used of other dog, of another species, pariahs, right? Um, and they, And so a lot, not within... I guess not as much within the field, but exactly the relationship in the history of dingoes is debated mm-hmm. um, in terms of whether they were domestic, completely domestic dogs who then sort of re-feralized or dogs who were sort of uh, uh, proto-dogs, wolves perhaps, who were on a trajectory and never got to be dogs. In other words, sort of like an intermediate stop on the way to because behaviorally, they are kind of an intermediate stop between wolves and um, dogs. So there's some discussion about that. I think mostly the people who study dingoes would say that they are dogs who have sort of re-feralized. I, I, just, I, I thought I knew a lot about dingoes. I did not know about that debate. And, and I know that the American, that the Carolina dog is not a dingo. Um, you know, it's, it's a... They they recently there was just a genetic study of a couple of years ago that 
found that the primitive dog, you know, the, 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 it's not the right word, but the, the amount of pre-Columbian DNA in Carolina dogs, um, while spotty, you know, because there wasn't a big enough sam- uh, sufficient sample, is not enormous, right? So there was, you know, a repopulation of European dogs that came and all that. But um, oh, I don't know anyway, what uh, the oh, so the, the last thing is, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. Um, the um, we were talking about border collies a second ago, and I remember there was a big outcry when the, from, from border collie owner, breeders, ranchers, you know, um, who use them as actual working dogs, that they didn't like it when the AKC said they were going to start showing up at Westminster and all that. And because the problem was, is that when you, part of the problem with dog breeding is you're breeding to a visual standard mm-hmm. rather than a behavioral standard. And they were like, People are like, look, border collies are really special because of their behavior. You don't breed them to look a certain way. You breed them to be able to do certain things. And having prettier border collies that will just sit there when you ask it to go get a sheep back um, is, is sort of defeats the purpose. Um, um, what do you think, just sort of generally speaking, about dog shows, about the sort of, I mean, I, you covered it a little bit before, but like, are, 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 is, is all of that ultimately good or bad for for the the betterment of dog kind? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I well, I will say first of all, you know, I love, I basically love all dogs. Like, show me like the most eye ulcerated pug. I still love them. I feel for them. <laughs> I don't think they should be bred, but I love them. Insofar as shows are basically perpetuating just what you say, which is breeding for appearance, and often Mm -hmm. the appearance that we choose are ones which are specifically detrimental to the health and well-being and longevity of the dogs, they are doing dogs an enormous disservice, right? And I I I don't see any enjoyment in that at all. Now, are there breeders who are registered with the AKC or the... Uh, United Kennel Club, who are working hard to improve the health and well-being of their dogs and keep this line of dogs healthy and also looking a certain way. Yeah, that's possible. Could be, right? So there's nothing in, there's, it doesn't have to be a bad thing, right? And there are people who are working to make their breed of dogs healthier. They like the way that dog looks. And I guess there's nothing inherently wrong with liking the way a dog looks and wanting to perpetuate that, right? Um, I can't, I can't say that we, you know, our reaction to dogs is is first is about their how they behave with us, and it's also about how they look. So that's a normal human reaction to have. So that's okay, insofar as it doesn't undermine the dog health. Um, in some cases, it does, like the Ridgeback, for instance. The Ridge that they, I love, Ridgebacks are gorgeous dogs. The Ridge that is is needed for confirmation to breed standard also is implicated in uh, you know some percentage of dogs getting dermoid sinus which is this horrible neurological disease which um, it's like multiple sclerosis type of thing which um, afflicts the dogs and so you know if a dog doesn't have the ridge they'll be destroyed because they don't conform to the standard but they might actually be healthier for the breed so that kind of paradox that a show allows to exist, I find deeply troubling, right? Um, I will say that, the, you know, recently some of the shows have started to have agility competitions and they allow mixed breed entrance. And I think, and you start to see some of these like really, Heinz, like we used to say, Heinz 57 dogs who mm-hmm. were just completely devoted and it's about something that they do not just about how they look Mm -hmm. and i love that that's great you know as long as the dog and the handler are having good time that's terrific um otherwise i don't i'm not a fan i'm afraid (laughs) i'm afraid i'm not even worried about saying that because it's so clear that it's the detriment of dogs and i'm just about the dogs all right alexandra horowitz thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it i really enjoyed it thanks for having me on john Okay, so Alexandra Harwitz has left the uh, studio. Um, uh, I hope that check boxes for at least the dog people out there. Um, and, you know, there'll be wonky 
internecine conservative uh, conflict podcasts galore in the future. But, uh, um, you know, I got to be, I got to be me. So thanks again to Alexander Horowitz. I thought she was great. Uh, check out her books. Check out some of her articles. We'll put it all in the show notes. And um, I probably have uh, um, more canine thoughts to provide, but maybe I'll save it for the solo episode. And uh, other than that, uh, be good to your dogs, get them some exercise, and um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.